Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. What is going on? Citizens, youth, hello. How are we feeling tonight, everybody? It is so good to be with you. Welcome. Hey, you guys showed up tonight. Super proud of you. My name's Noah. If it's your first time, if you're like first, second, third time, and you're like not quite so sure about what's going on here, you are welcome here. Super glad that you joined us. We're a community of students learning to live for Jesus. We're not hiding that fact. We're not shy of that fact. Uh, We sing a bunch of songs. We have some fun. We play some gaga ball. We hit each other in the face with dodgeballs occasionally. And sometimes in the gaga ball pit, it happens. It's happened to me. But um, we are more importantly here to worship Jesus and learn more about him. And uh, open up your Bibles to the end of chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. Uh, The book of Hebrews is a complex, it is a dense, it is a beautiful picture of our high priest who is Jesus. And it's a picture of an author who is trying hard to compel a group of people who have been thinking for a very long time about the Jewish faith and the Jewish traditions. He's trying to get them to see their high priest in the middle of their new story in Jesus. And so many of us, Um, everything changes when Jesus shows up. Everything changes when Jesus shows up, and that is what the author is trying to do. The author is trying to remind the listeners of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has accomplished, and what he is going to do forever. And he is explaining in this passage that we're going to see, he's concluding the thought that we saw last week, and he is proving over and over again that Jesus, our high priest, is going to fulfill the promises that he has given to us through his word. So like, there's different types of promises. Have you noticed this? I was thinking about this. There's different types of promises. There's like super serious promises, and then there's like promises that don't hold a lot of weight. Let's think about some more serious promises. Okay, Um, to define a promise would be to say, I'm going to hold up my end of this, you're going to hold up your end of this. Um, We are going to agree in this promise. Um, A serious promise would be marriage, right? If you're like standing up in front of a bunch of people, someone who you love one day, and you say, I do, that is a promise. You are holding a promise together. Uh, That's a pretty serious one, and you should follow all those promises you make. Um, There's there's a, a contracts, right? If you get a job one day, let's say Chick-fil-A, all right, great place. Jack just got a job at Chick-fil-A. Where's Jack? Good job, Jack. Good job, Jack, our newest employee of Chick-fil-A. If you see him, hey, just go up to him and say, thank you, Jack, and he'll say, my pleasure. That'll be, that'll be fun. It'll be ingrained. Better than Popeye's? Yeah, man, no, not, not quite. But um, not their sandwich. I'm not getting into it. I got into it at Tribes. I'm not getting into it right now. We're going to get distracted. I'm going to get distracted. No one's going to have a good time. What was I saying? Okay, job contracts. This is a promise. Hey, I promise to show up and do my job in a satisfactory way, and you're promising to pay me money, and I'll keep showing up. It'll be great. We'll both earn money together through labor and so on. And then there's some promises that like don't hold weight. 
which is like at the end of the night, your mom is like, hey, can you take the trash out? And you're like, oh, mom, can I take it out in the morning? And she's like, well, the, the garbage can, the garbage truck is coming tomorrow morning. Do you promise to take the trash out before then? And you're like, mom, I promise. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to do it. And then you wake up to the sound of a dump truck beeping and you think, oh no, I've completely, has anyone ever found themselves in this situation? Yeah. And then the rough part is you have to like figure out what to do with the trash, right? And it just kind of piles up for two weeks. So some promises hold weight. Other promises don't hold weight. Um, in my house, there's a tradition in our house, Jocelyn and I's house. I don't know why I said it like that. Our house, my house, whatever. Um, we have the pinnacle of promises to one another. There is like a traditional way that we show each other that we're going to keep our promises. And that is through the always present pinky promise. Now, I don't know when this started, but it's been pretty much through our whole relationship. If we pinky promise one another on something, it means we're telling the truth or it means we're going to follow through with what we said to do. So when it's late at night, and let's just say you have to take the garbage out the next morning and you pinky promise that you're going to do that, you should follow through with it, right? It means it, this is like the pinnacle of keeping a promise. Um, there is this thing that happened not too long ago. It is to this day one of the most controversial moments in our relationship regarding the pinky promise. And this was a couple, maybe like a year or two ago at this point. And I've talked about the Settlers of Catan a lot. I love that game. I play it a lot. It's very fun. It just makes sense in my mind. It's so much fun. You can barter with people. You can like backstab people. It is great. It is awesome. Great game. If you don't want to be friends with me anymore, play Settlers of Catan with me. So anyways, um, I had this perspective that pinky promises don't apply to games because games are not reality. Games are just like a subset of like reality. We're just doing this thing. And so there was this question posed. I don't remember what it was. I think it was like whether or not I had a victory card as like one of my cards on the table. And Joe was like, is that a victory card? I'm like, no, I promise. And she's like, do you pinky promise? And I verbally said out loud, pinky promises don't apply in Catan. And she held out her pinky and I was like, I'm telling you, this doesn't count. And, she's, and then she chose to trust me. And I flip over the victory point and I win the game. And it's just like, what happens every single time? And she's like, you broke your pinky promise. I'm like, no, I didn't. To this day, it's very controversial. But certain promises hold weight. Certain promises don't. Some people will pull through for you. And when they say, hey, I promise I'm going to do this, um, they're going to do it. And you know you can put their faith, you, your faith in them. You can put your trust in them. You know that they're going to hold up their end of the deal. And then there's some people who you're like, I don't know. They said they're going to do this, and they just don't do it. Um, there is someone who keeps his promises and is actually impossible for them to not keep their promises. And that is, of course, God. God, when he makes a statement, when he professes that something is true, when he makes a oath or he says that this thing is guaranteed, he has to follow through on it. Today we're seeing in this passage the story and the picture of a God who has constantly always kept his word from time and time and time again. And now as the listeners of this 
the original listeners, the original audience that is listening to these words are struggling, they're suffering, they're facing temptation, they're facing trials, they're facing, uh, they're being mocked by maybe some of their family members or friends. The author is saying, hey, remember God's promises. Remember who he is, remember what he's done, and remember what he has promised to you in the past, and remember what he has promised to you in the future. And he picks up here, In chapter 6, verse 13, it says, For when God, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is a final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. For we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into an inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God, we love you. We're thankful for this time. I pray that you be with us, be with me in this moment, that your word would just spill forth and that we would hear these words, we would listen to them, we would run to them, um, we would... Um, dwell on them and that we would think about your promises and we would know that they are true. Uh, I pray that we would be encouraged by these things tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The verses we just read, verses 13 through 19, show us a glimpse into God's eternal promises. God's eternal promises. Uh, so God doesn't need to pinky promise anybody. Uh, God doesn't need Uh, to like say, hey, I really promise you that this thing's going to happen. Why? Because God himself, as he says something, by the very definition of his nature, will do that thing. Why? Because it says here, this is a great verse to have, a great verse to know, because with God, it is impossible to lie. Verse 18 shows that, in which it is impossible for God to lie. When God says to anyone, to you, to me, or in this case, to Abraham, that he's going to do something, not only is it going to happen, it would be impossible for it not to happen. For when God made a promise, look at how many times that word is used there in these few verses. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I love that verse. God swore by himself. Oftentimes, when you're trying to show how serious you are, you try and elevate the promises. Okay, I swear by this, I swear by that. Um, God swore by himself in this exact moment. Why? Because there's no higher authority to appeal to in this exact moment. For when God made himself a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater to whom to swear. So what did God promise him? Do you guys know Father Abraham? He had many sons. Do you know him? Yeah. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. Okay. 
Uh, so let's just praise the Lord. Okay, so I will bless you and multiply you. This is the promise made to Abraham. We can find this way at the beginning of, of the story of God. In the beginning, we see man and women in the garden dwelling perfectly with God as priests, as perfect priests, dwelling with God in perfect harmony. Their sin made a separation, but God set out on this journey, this massive journey to bring people, you and me, back to himself. And we see the story of the Jewish people, and honestly, the story of God and the story of our faith start with this guy named Abraham. And now Abraham and his wife Sarah had this issue in which they couldn't have kids. They were very old. They didn't have any kids. But God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You will go forth. I will be your God. You will be my people. And um, I'm sure there was a moment, and there was a moment where it's like, but God, that can't really happen. But God always fulfills his promises. And of course, the, the people of Abraham, the Israelite people, grew and multiplied as many stars as are in the sky. God promised that would happen, and it did, and it is continuing to in a strange and beautiful way. Um, but when God makes a promise, he keeps it. But what did Abraham do? As Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God makes promises all the time. God has made promises through his word. But you and I oftentimes choose to focus on the problem instead of focusing on the promise. Many times, our situations in life will pop before our eyes, we'll see them constantly, and we'll choose to see the problems as bigger than the promises. You're gonna face trials, you're gonna have difficult days, but we have a book, 66 books and letters, hundreds and hundreds of pages full of the promises of God. And in our lives, we exist in the great in-between where God has made us a promise, but we are going to what? Obtain a promise. Let's keep on reading. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that there are two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. For we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is an encouragement for you. God will deliver, but we must endure. God will deliver, but we must endure. Just like a couple verses before this passage, last week we saw, we will obtain the promise if we are in Christ, but we have to endure. We have to have endurance. We have to have patience. And we have to choose to focus on the promises more than we choose to focus in on the promises or the problems. So what has God promised? What has God promised to you and to me? I've, I've brought up verses like this many times before us, and this exists for us as New Testament believers right here, right now. Um, here's a couple promises that God has given to you and me. One, number one, he's promised to be with us. That's Matthew 28, verse 20. It says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a promise that we can hold on to. Um, Acts 1.8, God promises to empower us to give us energy, to give us strength, to give us uh, wisdom, discernment. 
It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a promise God's given you. Another promise is to comfort us in times of affliction. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort in which we have been comforted. That's a promise to you and me. Again, God promises to give us Peace, that's John 14, 27. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Something that you can possess. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then finally, a big promise that you should know is God promises to save us. God promises to save us. This is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are you focusing on the promises or are you focusing on the problems? Which one, if your life, if you can place before you your perspective, your attitude, your outlook on life, which one is getting the more attention? The problems or the promises? Because what do the promises of God do in our lives? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This is verse 19, an anchor for the soul. A hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Going back to verse 18, I want to read Actually, put that on the screen. I want people to see it. Verse 18. For we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to hope set before us. God will deliver on these promises, but you and I have to set our eyes on these promises. God will deliver, but we have to endure. God will deliver, but we have to believe. God will follow through, but we have to trust. There's this two-sided relationship to our relationship with God. There's the promises, and then there's our faith. And I believe God gives us faith and God gives us more and more faith over the years. But you and I have to believe in the promises. We have to patiently wait for the promises, just as Abraham did. Just as those, uh, the saints that we read about last week have. Just as we imitate the saints as they're waiting for the promises. And they're closer to the ultimate promise. Why? Because they're an anchor for the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. I love that verse. If you've ever struggled with anxiety or pain or grief or any sort of mental ch- like, like moment, an emotional uh, challenge or an emotional day or whatever it may be, you know that your life can feel like a storm. And the one thing that you just want in your life in that exact moment is an anchor that is going to steady the ship that you are in. And that is what is promised here in God's promises. A steady and sure anchor for our soul. Not for our lives, but for who we are deep down. Which one are you focusing on? Because the storm may look big. The storm may look scary. 
The clouds may be swirling in. It may be getting colder. There might be a few drops of rain coming down already. But you and I have an anchor if we would choose to use it. If we would choose to listen to it. God promised these things. But we have to believe and hope and endure till the end. Because the ultimate promise isn't going to be fulfilled until we die. And you're like, man, (laughs) hear me out. It's a really good thing because when we do finally pass away in this life, if you're found in Christ, you get to see him face to face and you get to inherit a promise that God made to Abraham, to the Jewish people, and now those who are in Christ. That he will be our God and we will be our people. Are you enduring well? I want to encourage you, keep going. Wherever God's called you right now, wherever you're at, school, homeschool, whatever friend group you're in, endure patiently and trust in the promises. Endure patiently and trust in the promises. As we focus in on the promises, the problems will fall to the background, I promise you. The storm may be here, the storm may be past, the storm may be coming again at some point, but you and I have an anchor for the soul, a hope that is alive, a hope that is living. Uh, Verse 19, continuing on, it says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. This is the ultimate promise of God, and this is a living hope. This isn't a hope that is um, past. This isn't a hope that is to come. This is a hope that is alive to this very day after he rose again on the third day, 2,000 years ago, and that's Jesus, our living hope. It says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You can throw up that first picture of, of the inside of the temple. This is just like an artist's rendition of potentially like what the inner workings of the temple would look like. And the book of Hebrews is awesome. We're going to talk about it just in a second because it draws so much symbolism and ideas and characters from the Old Testament, which is very much an essential part of our faith as we will talk about in a second. But in order to be... Uh, forgiven and atoned for your sins, there had to be a sacrifice made on your behalf. Always, before Christ and now. That is true. There had to be a sacrifice and atonement for sin. And so before Jesus, uh, God has set forth um, these laws to follow in which the atoning sin sacrifice would be made for the people of Israel and all those who called Yahweh God. And that would be um, a priest's job to sacrifice these animals before God. But once a year, only once a year, there would be a specific ritualistic cleansing. There would be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the high priest. And the high priest on the day of atonement would be able to enter in behind a curtain which would separate the very presence of God, the very presence and essence and dwelling place of God from the people. There's this curtain. His spirit dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant And that's where God was for hundreds of years. We need to know that when we see that Jesus, our living hope, entered into the inner place behind the curtain. But he didn't have an animal with him. 
He had himself. He brought himself as a sacrifice. That's the atoning work, and that's the hope that's alive. I picture this not as a priest wearing all of his clothes that he was required to wear. I picture Jesus standing there with a crown of thorns, blood on the floor, walking into the Holy of Holies as the curtain is then for ripped in two. Our hope is alive, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Why? Because who could enter into the Holy of Holies? One guy after all these sacrifices, and then sometimes those guys would die in there and they would have to drag him out through a rope. So, so, would any of us be able to? No. But what did Jesus do? He entered in as a forerunner on our behalf. He went in first. He did these things. God's ultimate promise is fulfilled in his priest. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to read these final verses here for us. And um, we're going to talk about Melchizedek again, which I know you're all waiting for. I know you're like, man, I wish we could talk about this Old Testament character again. And you're in luck because we're going to do it. Okay, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, may Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and bless him. And to him, Abraham uh, appointed a tenth of part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor days, uh, beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils and to those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office of commandment into the law to take tithes for the people. That is from their brothers. Although these are also descendants from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descendants from them received tithes from Abraham and is blessed him had, uh, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might say that Levi himself, who received tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What a bunch of cool verses. Let's just go on a little bit of a side tangent here. This is a little bit out of the text that we're specifically talking about right now. How do you view the Old Testament? How do you view the Old Testament? Where does the Old Testament fit into your spiritual walk as a young Christian, as a young believer? Because a really immature way to look at the Old Testament would be to say, well... It's long, it's confusing, it has some things I'm not quite sure about, but I think a lot of it is about Jesus, and I like the Jesus part, so let's stick to that part. The Bible is more than two-thirds the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible is God's revealed word just as much as the New Testament is. 
When we read over passages like this, I've encouraged us with this before. When it doesn't make sense, when it's confusing, um, there's not a problem with the text. There's maybe a problem with me. It's maybe my lack of understanding, my lack of teaching, my lack of under, understanding the things of God. This is why it is so important, this is so important to be discipled by people who value the entirety of Scripture because you can look to passages in the Old Testament and be really intimidated and to not know what it's talking about and to simply avoid them. But I do not think that's what a mature Christian does. A mature Christian has to um, view the entire Scripture as God-breathed, as God-inspired, um, because the author of Hebrews certainly thinks so as well because he's bringing up this guy named Melchizedek who is only in three verses or four verses in the whole scripture before this. He was in Genesis 14 and then he was also in Psalm 107, I believe it was. So why is he talking about him again? That's a great question. It's because the author is trying to compare Jesus to Melchizedek. And we're going to see how that all interacts next week. You can throw up that picture. This is a picture from the Bible Project. Um, this is just like a quick moment where, and I really like the way that they put it. Uh, this is Abraham being blessed. He's kneeling by this priest, Melchizedek. Now we remember um, here in uh, here in this Old Testament story, uh, Abraham rescues Lot and he goes out on this battle and he defeats these kings and he receives uh, many blessings from these kingdoms, these empires. And um, as he has uh, gone faithfully forth to rescue Lot and to destroy uh, the enemies of God, he receives uh, lots and lots of wealth from these enemies. And all of a sudden, there's this quick reference when Abraham is leaving this battle He's going through Salem and he sees this guy named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek chooses to bless Abraham. And Abraham therefore returns the favor and gives one-tenth of his newfound earnings to this priest. What's really fascinating is that in the future, the Levitical line would go through Abraham. The Levitical line doesn't exist yet. And you're like, what's that? Okay, the Levitical line is from Abraham. And it was a group of people that were specifically chosen to serve as priests through heritage. So they're supposed to. So like, if your dad was a little Levitical priest, you would maybe become a Levitical priest. All right, and there is this um, passing down of this. But what the author is saying here is there's this Melchizedek guy who wasn't a Levite because this is before Abraham even had kids. As the Bible wonderfully puts it, his descendants were still in his loins. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's just what the Bible says. It's awesome. Um, so they're not quite there yet. But what is this priest doing? And what is Abraham doing in return? Uh, this priest who serves Yahweh we don't know how he served Yahweh. He's in a different city. The story of God's kind of beginning with Abraham. And then we have this guy who's like, he also serves Yahweh. Very cool. Awesome. Um, and, and what Abraham does is he gives a tenth of these earnings to this priest. This would be something that had to happen over and over and over again as the Levitical priests were born and came into existence. Um, it was required if you were an Old Testament believer, it was required to give a tenth of everything you had to the priests. You were required to tithe. We believe that you should still tithe, even though it was technically not required now. It's still a good gesture um, of giving and generosity to God. Um, so what is happening here? What is happening here? 
So Abraham ties to him, and the king and priest blesses him. This is all here in verse 3. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There is always going to need to be somebody who stands in the gap. And what the author is doing is he's saying Jesus is more important than Levitical priests. He is continuing in the order of Melchizedek, not into the Levitical priests. Even if there was a perfect Levitical priest, it wouldn't have been enough. He's continuing through um, after the order of Melchizedek. And why is he compared to Melchizedek in this exact moment? Um, Because it says here that he is, verse 3, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning days nor end of life. And so you're like, is Melchizedek like Jesus himself? Not quite. What the author is saying is we have no references to where Melchizedek is from, what happened to him, what would become of him. There's nothing in scripture that refers to his genealogy whatsoever. Nothing. And so that's what the author is saying. He's saying, look, there is no instance of his death and there is no instance of his life. He's almost this eternal character because there's so many few references to him in the Old Testament. But now the author of this New Testament passage is saying Jesus is continuing in that because Jesus is serving as a eternal priest. And that's the whole point of this passage. God's eternal priest is Jesus. God's eternal priest is Christ. And his ultimate fulfillment His ultimate promise was fulfilled in this priest from the order of Melchizedek continuing to this day. God's promises can't be revoked. God's promises aren't revoked. God's promises can't be changed. God's promises have been set in stone and they will continue on to this day. But the ultimate promise that you and I have to hold on to is that there is one, there is somebody who has continued to serve as a king and as a priest who has been eternal or appears to be eternal and that's Jesus. And the author is comparing Jesus to him. He'll continue to do that in this next week. You get three weeks where we get to talk about Melchizedek. Good for you. It is awesome. It is super cool. If you want to impress someone, just say that guy's name. And they'll be like, wow, that's really impressive. Where'd you learn that? God's ultimate promise is found in this eternal priest. And God's promises aren't revoked. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Is your hope anchored in the one who has walked beyond the veil? Is your hope in the eternal priest? Is your hope in the one who can appeal to God himself through his sacrifice? That is a living hope. That is an anchor for our souls. That is an anchor when life gets weird, when things get scary. There is a priest who has offered himself as a sacrifice, as that eternal king, as that eternal priest, who has walked beyond the veil for you and me. Who could do that? Only Jesus. And who can save you? Only Jesus. Who can give you hope 
and anxiety and pain? Who can give you a fresh perspective on the things of God? Who can give you joy that passes all understanding? Only the one who has gone before us as a forerunner. Only one who has gone beyond the veil to reveal himself as a sacrifice. And his promise is sure today that he will comfort you, he will guide you, and yes, he can even save you. Could you and I go beyond that veil? All the sin, all the hidden sins, all the things we've said, all the things we've done, could we pass through that veil and be in the very presence of a holy God? The answer is no, but there is a way where we can have this holiness and this righteousness imparted onto us, and that is very simple. That is belief. That's belief. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Just as those perish because of unbelief, we are saved through belief. And so if you listen to my voice today, if you hear these words and you're like, I'm not sure about the Melchizedek guy, but I like this Jesus guy. That's okay. That's fine. He is the one who can save you. He is the one who could bring you hope and a future and joy to this day. And any of us in this room would want to talk to you about him, tell you about him. And those who are in the room right now, struggling with anxiety, fear, have hope, hold on to hope, hold on and gravitate towards the promises of God. Let the problems of this world take their proper place in the backseat of what you are putting your focus and putting your trust in. Do not focus on the problems more than the promises. And believe this, we have a living hope, a hope that is here today. And because he walked out of that tomb and because he has given us his spirit, our hope is constantly breathing. Our hope is constantly alive. Refocus your life on that. Refocus your fears on that. Cast your fears on that and continue to endure until you and I receive the promises. That is what the author is saying. And that's what we're calling you to believe tonight. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're thankful for this time. I pray that you would um, be with us in our various anxieties and fears or whatever it is that our students are experiencing and they're feeling. Um, God, I pray that uh, we would properly put some of these stressors and some of these fears uh, behind us as we focus in on the promises. Uh, God, we're thankful that you are the one who walks beyond the veil, uh, that you are that hope that we have. You and your promises are the anchor uh, for our soul and that you um, have fulfilled your promises in your eternal priest. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.